Starting in the 1980s and then continuing through the 1990s, the country of Libya was ravaged with violence. I'm no expert on international affairs, but I'm aware that there was a long civil war that included the assassination of many political and especially religious Christian leaders in the country of Liberia. Many of these Christians experienced violence, hatred, and discord firsthand for being Christian. Reports from people who were a part of these atrocities said family members were tortured. Christians were killed. Homes and properties were destroyed. Men and women, children would sometimes go days, weeks, trying to find food to eat. One pastor reports that Christians in their church were sleeping in a bush or staying in a refugee camp for months on end, and they wouldn't even know where the rest of their family members, friends, loved ones were, didn't know if they were alive. As you might imagine, being in a refugee camp causes many people to become deathly sick without the normal availability to medication and general needs for the human life. Yet, in these trying times in Liberia, a Nigerian saying started to go viral in churches. Perhaps you know it. Here's a little quiz. See if you know how to finish the sentence. God is good all the time. God is good all the time. All the time. God is good. That was birthed out of the civil war of persecuted Christians in Liberia. The fact that some of you said those words shows the power of God's spirit moving in the midst of suffering. This phrase exploded from the hearts of people who know what it means to suffer, to be persecuted, especially to suffer for one's faith. So I say again, and if you want, God is good all the time. It is in very similar circumstances that Psalm 34 was birthed out of persecution and suffering. And emphatically, David declares to us, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. If you have your Bibles, follow along with me as I read Psalm 34. You'll see at the beginning of this psalm, it says it is a psalm of David. And we're told, as we find a few different times throughout the psalms, when he wrote this. So we're not guessing. We have, through what seems to be inspired earliest manuscripts of God's word, that David wrote this psalm when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be 
in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and errant word, and I pray that as we walk through Psalm 34, he will write its truth on our hearts. Or as we could sum it up, the truth that God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. I think if you were to say in a sentence, a longer one, not a short, pithy Christian platitude, but a longer summary of this psalm, it would be the psalmist invites the people of God to join him in praising the Lord for delivering him from his troubles and to experience the Lord's goodness for themselves if they would only follow the instructions in this psalm. I think that's what we have before us in Psalm 34 and poetically it's an acrostic, an alphabetic acrostic, 22 verses, 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. We saw this in Psalms 9 and 10. We saw this in Psalm 25, which is a twin parallel psalm. And I want to give three reasons in today's message as a formation of the outline. Why do psalms sometimes appear in alphabetic acrostics? You know, the ABCs, if you were to take 26 letters of the English alphabet and make one verse about God 
Write your own psalm today as an exercise. I would encourage you to think and meditate on Psalm 34 and come up with your own English alphabetic acrostic. Obviously, we can't transform this one into English because 22 and 26 don't match. There's other things we could say, but here's three reasons why the psalmist would do this. The purpose of an acrostic psalm is to communicate exhaustiveness, reason number one, completeness, reason number two, and orderliness, reason three. And I want to use those as our message outline today. Exhaustiveness, that's reason number one. And I want to do this by asking you a question throughout this first point. Acrostics communicate the exhaustiveness of a topic. It's the A to Z of whatever the person is writing about. So here's your question. When is God good according to Psalm 34? Well, verses 1, 2, and 3, I think, emphatically declare the exhaustive timetable of God's goodness. Verse 1, I will bless the Lord when? At all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth, and my soul boasts in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. And then he encourages everyone who would hear. So come, magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name together every time, all the time. We can continually pray and praise. So when is God good? All the time. Every situation, exhaustively, from the A to Z of the topic of God's goodness, you can bank your faith on that tomorrow morning, he'll be good. And next week, next Sunday, when we gather together, Lord willing, he will be good then. And his promises, a year from now, they will still be good. So when is God good? All the time. And as Eddie, I think, well confessed, we as Christians struggle with this concept. We put our prayer and our praise on pause because of the circumstances of our life. When the surgery doesn't go well, we wonder, I don't know if God's so good. When the test results come back, positive, bad news. When the pain doesn't go away and keeps coming and coming and coming. When your child doesn't listen. When your nation becomes polarized, when you wonder in your singleness, is is God ever going to provide a spouse for me? When God does provide that spouse and you wonder, is God ever going to change that person? And then they do change, but it's for the worst. Is he good then? When the American church continues to decline and shut down the buildings of churches year after year. When your work gets difficult and your co-workers, family members, or friends respond in anger or lacking tolerance about your Christian faith. Friends, that list is not a made-up, arbitrary, oh, Here's some things that we must think about. These are things that members of Embassy Church have been and are going through. 
So how can you all, and whatever you need to add to that list, say, God is good all the time. Well, let's, before we get too far into our message, realize that there is one that we know all the time is good. There is one who is the A to Z. His name is Jesus Christ. In the final book of the Bible, we find the exhaustive nature of the person of Christ being summarized by not the Hebrew alphabet, not the English alphabet, but the Greek one. He's called the Alpha and the Omega. If you read through Psalm 34 again, I want you to highlight, underline, do as an exercise, a circling around the word LORD. L-O-R-D, all caps. Notice the emphasis and the repetition of Yahweh. That's the word in all caps, Lord. Sixteen times is what you'll find if you count them all up. The repetition of Psalm 34 is to tell you from beginning to end, he is good all the time. Because we know that his goodness is expressed through Jesus, the Christ, the Alpha, and the Omega. There was never a time in the past. There never will be a time now. There never will be a time in the future when Christ is not there for you, with you, or going to deliver you through whatever trial you're dealing with. Following Jesus will not mean you will not suffer. But it does precisely mean you have the Alpha and the Omega to bring you to the end. Following Jesus does not mean that you will not physically die. I suspect all of us will. But you will be resurrected for those of you that are in Christ. Following Jesus does not mean you will not hurt, you will not cry and weep, but it does mean that you will be heard when you cry and when you weep. Why? Because the Alpha and the Omega, the one who stands above and beyond time and earth and space became human and suffered and we are told he knows what it's like to suffer. The Lord is his name. Jesus means Yahweh saves. That's literally what the name Jesus means. So when you read Lord, 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 we know that the exhaustiveness of the goodness of God is seen in the person and in the face of Jesus Christ. Secondly, acrostic psalms communicate exhaustiveness and now completeness. Satisfaction is what I mean by completeness. Thoroughness. Where you have enough, where it comes to an end, where you say, no, I'm good. I have Full contentment. Acrostic psalms in general communicate this, but how well does this psalm communicate it? Exceptionally. Verses 8, 9, and 10. Look again with me at these beautiful, glorious verses. Oh, taste and see that the Lord Yahweh is good. Blessed, how happy How content, how full is the man who takes refuge in the Lord, in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him will have no lack. 
Young lions will suffer want and they will be hungry. But if you seek the Lord, you will not lack any good thing. I mean, what a feast for your meditation. It is not just the gifts that the Lord himself gives. It is the Lord. He is the eternal good. He is the one who satisfies. He is the one who is enough. In fact, we had earlier in the service, Eddie come up and he read for us 1 Peter chapter 3. I read a very fascinating study in preparation for this. It was about all of the different ways people believe 1 Peter is borrowing Psalm 34. So it seemed fitting. We should read 1 Peter 3 when it quotes the longest quote of 1 Peter. But there's several other different allusions or references to Psalm 34 in 1 Peter. And I'm going to read you a second one. This is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like a newborn infant, long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. That is indeed if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Doesn't our psalm talk about not having your mouth filled with deceit? Well, that's relevant to verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Doesn't our, tom, our, our, our psalm talk about tasting the goodness of the Lord? I think this is a clear reference. So I ask, by way of the New Testament's meditation, in the midst of suffering, when you have a terrible, awful, pagan, Gentile ruler like you do in the Roman Empire who wants to kill and snuff out Christians like the people who are getting First Peter, what does Peter continually draw himself back to during those times? That's the book of First Peter in a nutshell. How to persevere through suffering. And some scholars suggest that they re- Peter references, just in First Peter alone, five chapters, references 18 different times the psalm that we're reading and studying. We know that he's quoting it in chapter 3, as Eddie read for us. It seems like an obvious allusion here. So, do you crave, do you long for, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good? Have you put off a certain diet or appetite for your soul and you have replaced it with a superior one? All of this reminds me of one of the great fathers of the Christian faith 1,700 years ago, a man named Augustine. He was a church leader in northern Africa who has this wonderful line about this concept. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, Augustine prayed in his well-known book, Confessions. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. We were made for you, God. We were made for your goodness. And we have an engine that drives us to have that filled, a hunger, a craving for something, someone. And you will find something to fill the void of that craving. So whatever you find, whatever you rest in, will display what you love and how you love. Look to your restlessness. 
It will be a way for you to reflect in your own life of what you enjoy and the things that you have replaced God with. Do you realize that your heart, though, was made for infinity? And any time you settle for what is finite, you will remain disappointed, not content, and wanting more and more. Humans are strange creatures, aren't we? We can never be fully satisfied. But that doesn't keep us from trying. This insatiability of hunger in our hearts, I believe it's not a fall defect, a bug, a problem with the design of humans. I think it's a feature. It's a signal. It's that you were made for heaven. You were made for God. So setting your gaze on something that is not ultimate will leave you empty. Wanting more ultimately I don't even think is the problem. It's where are you trying to find the satisfaction of that want? And on the basis of Psalm 34, a psalm I use quite often in pastoral counseling when dealing with addictions, Several of you have probably walked through addictive patterns in your life, and we've talked about tasting, craving, hungering after God compared to the thing that we're addicted to. Psalm 34 has been central to my personal counseling ministry here at Embassy. And I think out of all of the things that I'm most burdened by, especially just in this moment in time and day, is the sexual promiscuity of our day and world. And so I want to, by way of application, for you to think about the addiction of romance. The hunger in our hearts to want to love and be loved. And I want to do it through the lens of idolatry to help you understand that you are to taste and see the goodness of God and find your blessedness in him. Not in love from another human. The problem with romance is not romance. It's that you're expecting it to deliver too much. The problem with sexual promiscuity isn't that it transgresses the law of God, although it does transgress the law of God, and that is a problem. The problem with the sexual revolution that is permeating our day isn't even just that it chews people up, treats them like objects, spits them out, and acts like they're leftovers. It's that it doesn't work. It promises things and can never deliver. It hollows us out and reduces us to a people who will constantly be hungry. Brothers and sisters of Embassy Church, we must remember there is joy in the journey. But the joy in this journey is when you do not try and make the vehicle you are in in the journey your home. You want to live in your car? That's what it means to be too earthly-minded or worldly. There is love on the road to heaven when you stop loving the road and you see the road for what it was meant. And then you will experience the goodness of romance and love and every other gift. So do you know where home is? 
Do you know where cravings, tastings, hungers are supposed to terminate? When are you supposed to say, this is enough? I am satisfied. It's not just when is God good. We know God is good all the time. How is God good is the second question. How is God good? In which way? In what way is he good? And again, we, we bring ourselves to the ultimate person. Taste and see refuge in him. It's none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus thirsted on the cross so that you and I would no longer have thirsts in our heart. Jesus finished the work that was needed for salvation on the cross so that you and I could find that rest. In fact, almost every scholar I've ever read on John chapter 19 believes that in the death of Jesus, John is wanting us to remember Psalm 34. Do you know how at the end of this psalm, look down with me if you would, Psalm 34, many are the afflictions, but the Lord does not let any of their bones be broken. This is verse 19 and 20. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Do you know the afflictions of Jesus? Do you realize that of the psalmist's reference to righteous people who suffer a lot for their righteousness, there is none that can compete with the afflictions that Jesus experienced for being purely righteous, sinless, never once having a deceitful word in his mouth, never once having a lustful thought after a woman, never once having the fulfillment of sexual intimacy as a single man till the day he died. Righteous, satisfied, content in God all the way to the end. And John chapter 19 says this, after Jesus, knowing that everything was now complete, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. And so then a jar of sour wine stood there and they put a sponge to fill that sour wine with hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And Jesus, when he'd received the sour wine, he said, it's finished. He bowed his head, he gave up his spirit and it was the preparation day. And so that was the day when bodies would not be allowed to remain on the cross for Sabbath was the next day. The Jews asked Pilate that they could speed up the process and break the legs of the three men on the cross so they could be taken away and buried. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first two, the others that had been crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once then came out blood and water. And he who saw it had borne witness. This testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth so that you would believe. For all of these things took place that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. Do You see, following Jesus does not mean deny yourself so that you do not have pleasure. Or taste goodness. It means that you taste and see that God so loved you that he was willing to thirst. He was willing to hunger. He was willing to die. So that you and I would call him Lord and experience the ultimate superior pleasure and goodness 
of the universe. Friends, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Exhaustively good. Satisfyingly good. And third and finally, in an ordered kind of way, acrostic psalms bring order out of disorder. From chaos to coherence. So I ask a final question for us in Psalm 34. We've asked about when God is good. We've asked in what way God is good. And finally, I ask you, who is God good to? I said at the beginning of this message that the psalmist is inviting people to join him in praise. Because the Lord has delivered the psalmist from all of his troubles and his experiences. And that they should together experience God's goodness for themselves by heeding the instruction of this psalm. Who's the psalmist again? David. And this is where that little superscription comes into play. The psalmist, namely David, invites the people of God to join him in praise of the Lord for delivering him. What, well, what deliverance? Sometimes we have to guess. Sometimes we fumble around and try and think through, well, maybe it was this situation based on the language. Psalm 34, we don't have to guess. We're told. David was in trouble. Read First Samuel 21. That's the background in the little superscription at the top of the psalm. David, at this point in the story, is an anointed king, chosen, elected by God to be the king over Israel. There's a problem. Israel already has a king sitting on the throne at the moment that David is elected, anointed, chosen as the king. Do you all ever look back at human history, world history, and realize that when there's a conflict of interest between two powerful people, violence ensues? That's the story of 1 Samuel 21. David, the anointed king, is a threat to Saul, the current king. So David runs. He does not seek refuge. Sorry. He does not seek revenge. He seeks refuge. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in the Lord. He runs. If you're the anointed king, why not take your throne? Use that big giant sword that you got while you were in the land of Nob running for your life. You know that big giant sword that Goliath had? Goliath from Gath. You guys remember that story? David defeated a big giant. His name was Goliath and he was from Gath. Context is important here. David is in Gath holding a sword of Goliath trying to run and hide. Hmm. Maybe not the best of plans, David. It's really sometimes hard to understand what all's trying to be told in these stories. Is David doing something wise? Is he being deceitful? Did he lie to the high priest when he said, yeah, I'm on a secret mission? Was he being covert? All these things are at play. But the point of the story in the background is that David is forced to run for his life. He has no help from anyone. He's separated from his family, his close friends. He has no bodyguard. He has no armor. He does have a sword. 
And he does have some food because he stopped in Nob and got some. And he's there in Gath with Goliath's sword in Goliath's hometown. Maybe he's thinking, Saul won't look for me here. This is Philistine territory. This is enemy land. David was recognized. Go figure. Spoiler alert. Carrying around Goliath's sword in Goliath's hometown does not make you well hidden. So things get from bad to worse. They start cheering. They start shouting. Oh, that's David, the one who has slain thousands. They start shouting the praises of David. There's now an uproar in Gath. Enemies are chasing him from behind. Enemies are in front of him. He is trapped. He needs delivered. So what does he do? This is the craziest part of the story. Literally, craziness. That's what he does. He acts like a madman. He starts scribbling gibberish on the walls. He starts spitting all over his face with drool. He acts insane. And it works. The king of Gath. He says, this guy's crazy. I've got plenty of crazy people to deal with enough. Get him out of here. And so he runs. Free. Scott free. He's delivered. Into a cave. And for the first time in days, he gets a chance to take a breath, calm down, and reflect on God's merciful kindness to save him from death. And this is what the beginning of Psalm 34 says, a psalm of David right after he was saved in Gath. So who is God good to? Psalm 34 says, David. God delivered and heard the prayers of David. But it's not just David. David represents a leader, a ruler, a king. And Psalm 34, 1 through 3 says, I want you to celebrate God's deliverance because my deliverance equals your deliverance. And in a much greater way, Jesus Christ David's great-great-great-grandson, another David. He was humbled. He was poor. He went through all kinds of trouble. He took his refuge in the Lord instead of getting revenge from his enemies. He leaned in further into God's blessed goodness. And God provided everything he needed. And God's eyes watched over Jesus. He watched over him as he cried and as he wept on a cross. Jesus became the brokenhearted. Jesus became the crushed in spirit. Jesus had many afflictions, much, much greater than David. And none of them are tainted or scarred by the sins of Jesus. Who is God good to? Well, David, but David's great-great-grandson. But then remember the connection with 1 Peter. You, me, Christians, First Peter, Peter, one of Jesus' earliest disciples, he's meditating on Psalm 34, and he's thinking about Christians dealing with suffering, and he says, in the same way that God was good to David and delivered, is the way that he delivered Jesus. And on the basis of his deliverance of David and then Jesus, I propose to you Christians in the early church, press on, do good, be righteous, 
in Jesus Christ, know that he has taken away your sin and put your hope in him because God delivered Jesus from the dead. He raised him from the dead. He is now above all rulers and powers and dominion. This is the end of chapter 3, by the way. If you keep reading where Eddie left off, it says that he was made alive. And then he ascended. And he reigns and rules. And now that deliverance equals your deliverance. Who is God good to? Well, he's good all the time. And he is good to all of you who would put yourself in Jesus. That when evil happens to you, you do not repay evil for evil, but you, instead of revenge, take refuge in Christ. Notice verse 2, God is good to the humble. Notice verses 4 and 5, he's good to those who are afraid and look to him, they will not be ashamed. Look at verse 6, those who are poor and have all kinds of troubles. Look at verse 8, anyone who takes refuge in the Lord will experience blessedness. Look at verse 10. Those who would seek the Lord, they will not lack anything. God will be enough for them. Look at verse 15. Who is God good to? His eyes are toward those who are righteous. Verses 17 and 18 tell us that he is good to those who cry, to the brokenhearted, to the crushed in spirit, and anyone with many afflictions. There is not refuge from the Lord. There is only refuge in the Lord. And we know that precisely because verse 16 says the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Or in verse 21, afflictions will slay the wicked and those who hate righteousness, they will be condemned. In every which way you look at Psalm 34, it seems like it's trying to tell us even when things get really, really bad, God is good all the time. And he's good by being enough for you, even in the trial and in the suffering. And he's especially good at delivering. Did you see that thread through our psalm and sermon? All the time, no matter what's going on, he will be enough. He will deliver. In fact, in the psalms, there's 150 of them. The conspicuous, ambiguous, strange character shows up in Psalm 34 and in Psalm 35 and doesn't reappear ever again in the Psalms. Who's that? The angel of the Lord. The messenger of Yahweh. Fifty-some different times outside of the Psalms, the angel of the Lord appears as a deliverer, as a punisher, as one who takes down God's enemies as one who rescues God's people out of Egypt. The angel of the Lord, the one who helped Joshua win his battles in the land of Canaan. The angel of the Lord is not Yahweh the Lord, but is equal with the Lord. Hmm. There's someone throughout the Old Testament that can do things with the authority and power of God that only God can do gives promises and speaks on behalf of God, only promises that God can give and deliver on. And he's talked about repeatedly over and over again all through the Old Testament and only appears twice in the Psalms, Psalm 34 and Psalm 35. And when the New Testament comes around, the angel of the Lord isn't mentioned. Hmm. 
I believe the angel of the Lord is Jesus the Christ, the mighty warrior who delivers God's people and crushes God's enemies. All the time, you can look to the Alpha and the Omega, the satisfier and longer of our thirsts, the bread from heaven who is enough, and the deliverer. The angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ, God's son incarnate. Find refuge in him. There will be no refuge outside of him. You either are one of his people or you will be remembered no more. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil and are not made righteous in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, friends, visitors, God is in fact good all the time. And all the time God is good and we know this precisely because of Christ. I plead you, plead with you, hope in him, trust him, see him, taste him, experience him. In fact, we should do that now as we take the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and our heavenly Father, we come to you now in the name of your son, Jesus, the anointed one, or as we sometimes say, the Christ. We come in the name of Jesus because we know that we are people who have been wicked. We know that we have been people that have pointed our finger at you for the suffering of this world instead of owning up to our own responsibility for the ways that we have contributed thousands upon thousands of times and ways of not being good. In every which way that you are the eternal definition of goodness, Our sin is the definition of badness. We have rejected you, the fount of living water that satisfies our thirst, and we have gone after empty buckets with no water in them. And we throw that bucket away and we turn to another one. And we keep trying again and again in our sin and folly and foolishness. God, we have been sinful, foolish, rebellious, disgraceful, shameful. And it's precisely because of our our knowing full well how poor we have been in being good that your goodness shines all the brighter. Your love and your grace and your mercy is all the clearer and richer and more beautiful. And therefore, we can taste and eat the bread and the cup and know you are so good. So I pray for anyone here today that does not know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, that they have not lived a life that says, no more doing things my way. I would like to find refuge in Christ. I pray for them. I pray for anyone who hears this message now or in the future, that your Holy Spirit will open their eyes to their need of a Savior their poverty of spirit, and that they would find you to be the one who comforts and fills and satisfies. I pray for all of us who are hurting today, who are freshly reminded of the pains and sufferings of this world. And I pray that we would remember your goodness. We would persevere in faith. I pray that we would remember Christ and how much he was willing to suffer even though he did not deserve an ounce of it. Help us to do that now as we eat the bread and drink the cup in Jesus' name. Amen.